And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Here is Jesus speaking. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, it is a privilege to come into your presence, to be heard by you and to hear from you, to hear your word. And so by your spirit, who stirs us up to worship, by your spirit who has preserved this word and who inspired it, by your spirit, lead us into truth today. Deliver us from everything that's not helpful, from every error we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, there are turning points in our lives that set apart everything that comes after that event from everything that came before. And often these are happy things, like weddings. Weddings transform you. You were a single man, but now that single man is dead, and now you're married, and you have new duties and new responsibilities, and everything changes with a wedding. Everything changes when you have a child, and a child makes you a mother. A child makes you a father. Uh, you look back to the day of the birth of your first child as, as a marker between the old you and the new you. A big move to a new place with all kinds of new opportunities is a threshold in your life, and you look back to it. But there are also tragedies. There are losses and bitter providences that become turning points as well. You think back to the day when that thing happened, that tragedy, that loss, that death, and before that point, your life seems like a different life. And everything after that has been permanently defined and shaped by what happened on that day. And this not only happens to individuals and to families, but entire nations and civilizations go through these threshold moments. Events like Pearl Harbor and the assassination of John F. Kennedy and September 11th were all profound defining moments for the generations who lived through these things. And if you just think back, think about to the world. The world before 2001, it feels like a different place. It seems like a different world from today. And we'll probably add March of 2020 to that list. When you study the history of the first century and you study the record of the New Testament, you're reading about epic events that changed not just individual lives, not just nations and generations, but these are events which fundamentally changed the world forever, such that all of the events before this, all of the events before the gospel, that was the old world, that was the old creation, that was the old order of things. All of the events after these events is the new world. The world after this is the new world. So the life of Jesus, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension changed the world. And that's not just a, a hyper-spiritualized overstatement. Yeah, Jesus changed the world. No, no, actually, <laughs> nothing is the same after Jesus comes. Death is beaten. The grave has been defeated. Satan is chained so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore. The old idolatry and the old forms of paganism and heathenism die as the light of the gospel increases. God's spirit is poured out. Uh, the, the church increases and grows in influence and glory. And within a generation of the coming of Jesus, the old world of antiquity, 
the old BC world, that old world completely collapses. And not just Jerusalem and not just Judea and everything in them, but all of civilization goes through convulsions and tribulation and turbulence such that, as we saw in our text last week, Jesus says, there's never been a time on earth like this and there never will be another time again like this. Uh, that nothing like this will ever happen again. In this time period between the coming of Jesus and the year 70, in that period, the city of Rome was burned to the ground and had to be rebuilt. The dynasty of Julius Caesar ended. The, the original dynasty of Caesars was over. In those days, old Rome died and had to be reconstituted, reorganized into something different. And that, there's something going on in the nations as well. Uh, because you, you read Daniel and you see that God set up these empires to be a, a, a safe place, a harbor, a protector for his people. But now after this, after he's done with Rome in that role, Ro Rome dies and Rome has to be resurrected into something different. All this upheaval in the world reveals that God has fundamentally changed everything through Jesus. Now, after these events, now living on the other side of all this, if you want to be in the covenant with, if, if you want to be in covenant with the God of creation, you don't find him at the temple. It doesn't exist anymore. You do find him in the church scattered throughout all the cities of the world. You don't bring animal sacrifices. Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. And in him, we present our bodies living sacrifices. Now, you do not have a sinful man as your intercessor anymore. Jesus is the great high priest. There's no longer a specially designated priestly tribe or a priestly family or a priestly nation anymore. That designation is over for Israel. The church is the covenant family. The church is the new people. The church is the new nation. So in Jesus, everything is transformed. Everything moves from glory to greater glory. Everything is expanded and truly made better in him such that there's not only a new earth, but there's a new heaven. There's a new heaven. After these epic events, heaven is not the same place as it was before. Because right now, there is a man named Jesus. There is a man sitting on a throne ruling over the cosmos. Uh, is that a development or not? I mean, that's a development, right? There is a man with human DNA sitting at the right hand of the Father ruling over the cosmos. Uh, he has led captivity captive. He has torn the gates off of Hades. And, and, and he's led the Old Testament saints out of the, Abraham, uh, out of the bosom of Abraham into, into heaven. And heaven is now populated by men. In our study of Revelation a couple of years ago, I, I kept pointing this out. As the angels get up to do the things that the, uh, that the voice from the throne tells them to do, as they get up and obey, they leave their thrones and those thrones are populated by men. Those thrones are taken up by men. So heaven has changed. With the ascension of Jesus, we truly have a new heavens and a new earth. Everything is transformed. And the event that brings finality to that old world is the event that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. It's the day when that temple, the temple that Jesus just sat in, the temple that Jesus turned over the tables in, the temple that they just walked around, the temple that they see as they sit on the Mount of Olives, the temple that Jesus says, do you see this? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. That, that temple came down and with it, the old world ends entirely with God's verdict 
on that old world and that old creation. It's this event that proves that Jesus is on his throne in heaven. And he'll say that in our text today. It's this event that vindicates the word of Jesus, that demonstrates that he is a true and faithful prophet, that what he said about the collapse of Jerusalem came true. It actually happened. And so these are the events that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. Remember our two guardrails for understanding this conversation and this discourse. The first is that Jesus says, you see all this? It's all coming down. And the disciples say, when is this going to happen? And that's what kicks off this conversation. And then in verse 34, he says, all of this will take place before this generation is gone, before this generation passes away. So we fit all of this within that context of the question and within that, that generation. And so after the temple comes down, nothing is ever the same again. You can't please God following the old ways, the old ordinances, because there's no priesthood, there's no altar, there's no temple. You don't have the option of doing the old things anymore. Everything has been transformed and made new in Christ. And this, this event that Jesus foretells in Matthew 24 is the final, uh, the final upheaval, the final uh, uh, death spasm of the old world. Because of the cataclysmic language that Jesus uses here, though, Christians reading Matthew 24, who have been influenced more by the Schofield Study Bible and the great, uh, late great planet Earth and the uh, Left Behind books, people who have been more influenced by that than the Old Testament prophets assume when they read Jesus that Jesus can't be talking about anything other than the end of planet Earth. But if you know the Old Testament, then you hear Jesus speaking very much like the prophets of old spoke. And Jesus uses the very same imagery and the very same language that they do when they prophesy the end of Babylon or the end of Egypt or the end of Judah itself. Uh, let's pick up in verse 29, and I'm going to aim to finish all of Matthew 24 today. So we'll, we'll pick up the pace. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, it may sound like the collapse of the universe, but if you know the Old Testament prophets, as Jesus' disciples did, you know that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel use this language of cosmic collapse to talk about the judgment and the downfall of nations. Now, why would they use sun, moon, and stars to talk about nations? Well, on the fourth day of creation, when God created the heavenly bodies, God said, uh, let, them, let them rule. They will rule the day and the night. And our lives are. Our lives are ruled by the sun and the moon. Our, we mark our days and we mark our weeks and months and years by the movement of the sun and the moon. And our distance from the sun and the moon gives us, uh, our distance from the sun gives us our, our seasons. And so at creation, God says, these heavenly bodies will rule. And then from then on throughout human history, rulers have always been associated with heavenly bodies and the symbolism of heavenly bodies. Sun, moon, stars all show up uh, on, on flags. They represent authority and power and things that are fixed in the heavens. There are kings who will call themselves the sun king or the sun god. Why do they do that? Um, so the prophets, when they're using this sun, moon, and stars language, they're talking about the political cosmos, the political order, not the physical cosmos. And when the prophets speak about those lights going out, the sun, moon, and stars going dark, they're talking about the lights being turned off 
for Babylon or Egypt or Judah. Now I'm gonna give you a few examples and you can write these references down if you wanna look them up later. Don't take my word for it. Go read Isaiah and see how, he, see how he speaks. Isaiah 13, the prophet describes the day of the Lord this way. He says, listen closely to this. I'm gonna be reading some stuff from the Old Testament and, and you tracking with this is gonna be dependent on listening, listening closely to the Old Testament prophets. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of Yahweh of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Now, what is Isaiah talking about? If you go to the beginning of that chapter in Isaiah 13, you find that these are the things that are going to happen to Babylon. And they did. The lights went out on Babylon, all their kings were removed. Their society collapsed. Everything went away and Babylon is no more. Can you fly to Babylon today? Can you go visit? Can you take a tour? Does Babylon have a seat in the UN? Does Babylon send a team to the Winter Olympics? They don't because they don't exist. God turned their lights out. They are no more. In Isaiah chapter 34, Isaiah says about this day of the Lord, he says, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit falling from the fig tree. If the heavens are rolled up, that means the old order, the order of the world is being removed. The organization of the world is being removed and replaced. And that happened for Babylon because that's what uh, Isaiah is prophesying about. The end, the judgment on Babylon. In Ezekiel 32, Ezekiel declares God's judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. And Ezekiel says this, when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens, I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. So again, these are events the prophets told us, uh, told the people, these, are gonna these things are gonna happen and they did. Uh, the prophets described these things in this way. They described the downfall, the destruction of nations using this cataclysmic, cosmic language. And Jesus now uses the same language with his disciples to talk about the coming fall of Jerusalem, which is in their future. The lights are going out on Jerusalem. The clocks are gonna stop. That entire order with all of its institutions is about to be rolled up. As a footnote, how chilling would it have been to hear Jesus describe the end of Jerusalem using the very same language as the prophets did of the end of Babylon and of the end of Egypt. What kind of nation are we dealing with here? Well, we're dealing with the sin of Egypt and the sin of Babylon, which is idolatry. Um, and that's, what, that's the verdict against Jerusalem. I'm gonna keep going, verse 30. Then the, son of, uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And when we read about the coming of the son of man, and by the way, we, we keep uh, reading about this coming. This is very same use of this word that was the question of the disciples. When is your parousia? When is your arrival in judgment to sort all of this out? This is the coming that we're talking about, but we read about the coming and 
our brains tend to think of Jesus's movement from heaven to earth. But what is in view here and what Jesus says is the entrance of the Son of Man into the heavens. And we know this because what Jesus is referencing here is Daniel's prophecy. In Daniel 7, Daniel is writing about the ascension and the enthronement of the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man is enthroned, the saints are gathered to him. Satan is beat down. Satan and his minions are defeated. That's in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel loved to use this phrase, uh, this, this term, son of man, for the Messiah. And Jesus, uh, perhaps his, most favor his favorite title for himself is son of man. And so you can hear Daniel echoing in the background every time Jesus calls himself or refers to himself as the son of man. So listen closely to Daniel chapter 7, because this is in the background of what Jesus is saying. Uh, Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So Jesus is enthroned and the multitudes of heaven, the multitudes of heaven are gathered to him. And, and Daniel continues, the beasts have their dominion taken away. Their lives are prolonged for a season and a time, but their power is taken away. And then Daniel continues, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." So when Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming with clouds, the Son of Man sitting on his throne and all of the saints being gathered to him, Daniel is describing the ascension and the enthronement of the Son of Man. That's what Daniel is referring to. And so Jesus is talking about that event when the Son of Man comes with the clouds, the hosts of heaven, and everything and everyone is gathered to him um, that, that's, the, that's, this, that's the sign that, that Jesus is talking about. And so in Daniel, the setting of all of these events is heaven. The saints and the hosts of heaven who are gathered to Jesus, the Son of Man, are in heaven. And when Jesus talks about this as well, notice that the setting of Jesus' words is heaven as well. This, this gathering of the hosts are not from earth to heaven. This gathering is from heaven to heaven. The gathering, the angels gather the elect from the winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so I'm convinced that Jesus is putting the prophecy of Daniel in the context of the cataclysmic events of what's coming on Jerusalem and declaring that when you see these things happening on earth, the things that I'm telling you about, this abomination of desolation, of this great tribulation, the, the collapse of Jerusalem and, and the collapse of the city and the collapse of the temple, this, this is the sign. This is the sign that the Son of Man is enthroned in heaven. This is what, this is the sign that the Son of Man is reigning from heaven. This, if this happens the way I tell you it's going to happen, then you'll be able to say Jesus didn't go to hell you'll know that Jesus was the Son of Man enthroned in the heavens. This is the sign, the sign that the Son of Man is reigning from heaven 
and that he's vindicated against the false accusations of those who crucified him. Um, when this all comes true, you'll know for sure that Jesus reigns from heaven when this happens. Jesus says the tribes of the land will mourn. And he's referring, I think, to Zechariah 12. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look on me whom they pierced, whom they pierced. The, the ones who pierced him will see this and mourn. Yes, they will mourn for him. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Again, this is tied this is tied to the generation who pierced him, the, the generation who crucified him. On them, these, these judgments fall. And Jesus also says here that the angels will sound a trumpet. In Revelation, John talks about uh, the, all the events that are predicated by the blast of a trumpet, like, like the trumpet blast that signals the, the year of Jubilee. This trumpet blast is not the end of all things. This is the beginning of something new, no, no less than a new creation. This trumpet blast is a, is, a, is a new start. As Jesus is enthroned in the heavens and the saints are gathered before his throne in the highest heaven and his saints now sit down on thrones with their Lord, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, they're enthroned in the heavens with him. Now we know, now we know for sure that, that man has his entrance into heaven and, and that, that men are like stars that rule over the creation. Uh, that is the sign, Jesus says. This, this thing on earth is the sign that what Daniel said has happened. Verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. At the doors, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, this little parable of the fig tree that Jesus tells has to be connected to Jesus' cursing of the fig tree just a few days prior to this. Uh, when we studied that curse on the fig tree, we saw this is Jesus cursing the fruitlessness of Jerusalem. Fig trees bear a lot of symbolic weight in the Bible. We know that fig trees were in the garden because we know of Adam and Eve's sad attempts to cover their shame with fig leaves. And throughout history, the, the history of Israel, fig trees are always a, a, a symbol of God's blessing, of God's providence. Uh, the righteous, we read in many places, the righteous rest under the shade of a fig tree and enjoy its fruits. Uh, so the idea, whenever we see that, is the, uh, the idea that righteous men have access back into the sanctuary, that they have access to the, uh, to, to the fellowship of the garden, the communion with God, and they have peace there. But this nation, as Jesus describes it, is a, is a fig tree with all leaves and no fruit. They only have leaves, and those are a pretty shameful, pretty useless covering for sin. They cannot hide their own shame. They've rejected the sacrifice for their sins. They've rejected the Messiah. And so they're left without a covering for sin. And so all this is in the background. When Jesus says, when the fig tree starts to turn green, I mean, just botanically, just agriculturally, you know when the fig tree starts to put out leaves, it's a sign to everyone that the winter is over and the days are starting to get longer and the days are starting to get warmer. The sun of the new covenant is going to shine brightly. And so just as you're good at reading 
the signs of the season, I'm telling you to watch for the things that I'm telling you are going to happen. There are going to be signs that you can pick up on and there are going to be things that you can read because all of this is happening, Jesus says, before this generation will pass away. Now, I've repeated that and I've said that over and over and over because um, that, that, is, that is a, a, a guardrail and an and a important contextual key to what Jesus says here that just gets passed over. When I was in a, a dispensational seminary many, many years ago, our, our semester-long project for our Old Testament prophecy class was to, uh, was to make a huge chart of all the things that are going to happen in our future that we can look forward to, the, the, the mark of the beast and the, uh, the rise of the Antichrist and the great tribulation, all these things. So we were to diagram Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and the Olivet Discourse, and the Book of Revelation, and Thessalonians. We're going to diagram all of this, and I, I literally got a bed sheet that, that I, I covered with, with uh, lines made with shoe polish just to make them bold and stick out, that whole thing. And all of that, I was certain at the time, all of this is in our future. But you see, what Jesus says here is that everything he describes for is in the future of that generation. He says, all these things, I'm telling you, all of these things are going to happen before this generation will pass away. So you need to take that whole big diagram, that whole big bedsheet, and fold it up and wad it up and stick it all before AD 70 and, and after AD 40 because it all has to fit there. It all has to go there. He says, this heaven and earth will pass away, and it does. The heaven and earth does, the old world, the old heavens, it all passes away. But his word will by no means pass away. And everything he said came true. So he exhorts them to watch. It's imperative that they pay attention to what's going on because he's not going to give them a day, a month, and a year. He says in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, the day and the hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And the idea, the sense that Jesus doesn't know something that the Father knows, trips uh, some people up when you, when you study and you consider the doctrine of the deity of Christ. You think, if, if Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, how can the Father know something and Jesus is ignorant of it? But Jesus doesn't say he's ignorant of it. Jesus says the Father knows it. He hasn't revealed this to the angels. I think it's, it's, uh, it's not that complicated when you understand Jesus is the word of the Father. Uh, Jesus is the revealer of the word of the Father. So Jesus only says what his Father gives him to say. The Father does not give him this to communicate, and so he doesn't reveal it. It's not his to reveal. The day and the hour is not revealed, because if it had been, just knowing human nature, you know, you would know the date, and you would just set it on cruise control, and you, you coast up until that day. You circle it on your calendar and say, we've got time. We don't need to labor. We don't need to work. And then once it gets close, then we're going to run around in a frenzy to get ready for the end of the old world. No, Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to give you a date. Instead, be on alert constantly. Always be watching. Because this judgment, when it finally comes, will be in a day where everything will seem to be going as normal until everything suddenly collapses. And, and that was the case with these events in our history that I mentioned earlier. You know, 
Assassinations happen when nobody expects. Enemy attacks and uh, uh, provocations and, and, and you know, mass psychosis overtakes our, our nation and catch people off guard. They come out of nowhere. This happens when everything is stable and you think everything is normal and all of a sudden the whole world is shaken. And that's how Jesus describes the days of Noah. Now, we, we look back at Genesis and we see how Moses described the days of Noah and we see, well, those were days of violence and those were days of chaos and great evil, and they were. But that's not what Jesus emphasizes. Notice, he says they were doing normal things too. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the flood came, and here's a key phrase, the flood came and took them all away. Uh, that's how Jesus coming in judgment will be. That's how this parousia, this, this judgment will, will be unexpected. It will be sudden to the unaware, to those who are not watching. And it will be a catastrophe of worldwide proportions, just as the flood was. So watch for the signs. Now he says, remember, the flood came and took them all away. Hold on to that. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." This event that Jesus is talking about here is not the same thing that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. We're talking about the consummation of the end of all things, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, our being caught up to, to the heavens together with the resurrected and to be with the Lord forever. Uh, the people being taken here, it's not talking about the same event. The people being taken here are being stolen into exile. Remember, Jesus just said, in the days of Noah, the flood came and took them all away. Where were they taken? The people taken in the flood. Were they taken into rest? No, they were taken into destruction. That was not a, you didn't want to be taken away by the flood. That was bad. Likewise, when the Assyrians came and the Babylonians came centuries before this, they didn't take every Israelite into captivity. Some were taken as slaves. Some were taken into exile. Some were left behind in the fields to work uh, the land, uh, Jeremiah 40, Jeremiah 52, talk about uh, there, there were some who were taken and there were some who were left to work in the fields. So this taking away that Jesus is describing is being carried off into destruction. It's being carried off into slavery, being carried off by the Romans. So two men are working in the field. One is taken, one is left. Uh, two women are grinding in a mill. One is taken, one is left behind. Which is, right, which is the righteous one? The one who's taken or the one who's left? What's the answer? Neither of them. Neither of them is the answer because the righteous have already split. The righteous have already left town. They saw the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. They saw the completion of the corrupt, perverted temple of Herod standing there. And when they saw that, they listened to Jesus and they got out of town. They fled to the mountains. Uh, being taken here is not a good thing. The righteous will avoid it the righteous will not be taken. So Jesus finishes this section with one more exhortation, one more exhortation to work faithfully and to watch. Uh, look at verse 45. We'll, we'll finish with this last little section here. Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. 
Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over the next 40 years, there's going to be a constant temptation. But between the time Jesus says this and the end of the old world, there's going to be a temptation toward doubting and spiritual lethargy and falling away of those who just can't persevere, who just can't wait. They're drawn away by the cares of this world. Um, Peter talks about this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, there are scoffers who say, where is this promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from creation. There are people in Peter's day, just a couple decades after this, Peter's day, people are saying, oh, everything's just shambling along. Everything's just going on as it was before. The judgment's never gonna get here. The vindication of Jesus is never gonna happen. The, the, the persecution that's coming from the temple and the synagogue is just never going to stop. That's the complaint. And then Peter reminds them that, remember how suddenly the flood came? Well, that's the very same thing Jesus refers to. And Peter was sitting here when, when Jesus speaks of this. So Peter says, don't you remember uh, that, that the, the, the suddenness of the judgment of the flood? And then Peter says, um, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Uh, Peter says, God doesn't give us dates. God, God doesn't tell us to, to circle this time in the calendar. That's not how he does it. He gives us symbols and he gives us patterns and he gives us mysteries and he gives us signs that we meditate on and we figure out as we're faithful, as we work to understand the scriptures. And so in the meantime, don't use the delay of judgment as an excuse to slack off and think, well, God has forgotten us or God isn't watching or God doesn't care anymore because surely the master will come. He'll come in a day when you're not watching. And Jesus says he will cut the lazy drunken servant in two and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, if, if you belong to Jesus and this, this exhortation to watch and to labor faithfully and to not slack off just tells me that if, if we belong to Jesus, we don't get an off day from being faithful, right? You don't, you don't get a cheat day where you get to pursue the lusts of the flesh, right? You, you, you know, can, can we just slack off today? Can we, just, can we just not pray today? Can we just not meditate on God's word today? No, 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 no. You are called every day to overcome evil, every day to mortify the flesh, every day to beat down the works of the devil. And that's the, that's the exhortation that Jesus gives here. So this judgment that Jesus spoke about came, it absolutely came 40 years after his earthly ministry. On the one hand, it sounds like, man, 40, 40 years is a long time to wait. 40 years in the wilderness, that was enough time for one generation to come up and another generation to, to die out. Um, but in another sense, 40 years is nothing. You know, 40 years ago, that was 1984. And as I, I remember 1984. It doesn't seem like that long ago in some respects. And I, I realize some of you weren't born then, and I'm sorry for you because you missed out on some really good music and you missed out on some really good movies uh, back then. But we can get you caught up. We can, we can teach you uh, the way. Uh, but 40 years in the course of a lifetime and 40 years in human history is a blip. 40 years is nothing. 
And he just tells him to wait, just these few decades, just wait, just be patient, just be faithful. And in the space of four decades from when Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another and will not be thrown down, um, just, just in 40 years of Jesus saying that, it happened. It happened. His word was fulfilled. And that is proof that Jesus can be trusted the proof that his word is rock solid. Now, you've heard various critics of the Bible and various scoffers, they'll point to Jesus's promises of return, the promises of his coming, and they'll say, well, all the apostles expected this to happen in that generation. And they assume it didn't. I mean, the scoffers say, well, it didn't happen. So Jesus must have been a false prophet and Jesus gave his people false hope. But you can only reach that conclusion if you're ignoring the Old Testament prophets, if you ignore, willfully ignore first century history, and if you willfully, deliberately misread Jesus, that's the only way you can come to that conclusion. Here's what I'll grant. If the things Jesus said were going to happen in that generation didn't happen in that generation, then Jesus is indeed a false prophet. And we'll add to that. John says at the beginning of his book of Revelation, and repeatedly he says this, these things must shortly take place. If those things didn't shortly take place, then John also is a false prophet and can't be trusted. But here is the good news. Here's the really good news. They did happen. And they happened exactly as Jesus said and as John told us they would happen. And this reading, this reading that I'm giving you here, this understanding is the only way to read this and come away trusting Jesus and not doubting his word. Did this happen in that generation or not? It's pretty simple. Did it or not? Because if it didn't happen, Jesus is a false prophet and there's no reason he should be believed or trusted. But I'm confident that it did happen. And so rejoice, you can trust him and his word is faithful and true. This is what is at stake. This is why I've slowed down in this chapter and spent so much time on it. And I know some of you have the destruction of, of the temple coming out your nose and coming out your ears. And you're like, oh, we're done. We're done hearing about this. But I'm telling you, this is why it's so important. That's why we spent months in the book of Revelation a couple years ago, because his word is trustworthy. He can be trusted. And it's important that we understand he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And so we have an answer to the critics and the scoffers but there's more. There's more. Not only that, this is the reading of these things that gives us a full-bodied hope for the success of the gospel in history, on earth, and through the church. Jesus gave his people a job to do. He told them to uh, uh, disciple the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He equipped them with his spirit to do so. Jesus prayed to his Father that his Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does the Father answer that prayer of the Son? Does the church complete the mission that she's been equipped and empowered to do? Will she do that in history? Um, his, word, his, his word tells us that our labors are not in vain. Are our labors effective or are they in vain? Because we're just looking forward to fire and destruction. This reading is important because this means that the end of the world already happened. So get to work. The end of the world already happened. So labor in faith and hope and joy. The great tribulation already happened. 
We are not looking forward to misery and defeat. We expect victory. You see, with this reading, uh, we understand that Jesus isn't waiting to reign as king someday. Jesus isn't pacing around, hoping certain things happen in a certain order so that finally he can be revealed as king to the nations. No, no, God forbid, Jesus reigns now. And we know that because we've seen the sign. What is the sign? That his word was true. His word was fulfilled. And so we see the sign that the Son of Man is reigning from heaven. We know this. And we know that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. It just grows and grows and grows and grows, unabated, unmitigated. His reign continues. He rules over the powers of the earth. He rules over the sun, moon, and stars of the earthly rulers and nations. And when it's time for them to be folded up, and for their lights to go out, they collapse. He snuffs them out like a candle. He is the man, Jesus is the man enthroned in the heavens to whom all the saints are gathered, to whom we will be gathered when we die. He is the one who brings judgment to old worlds and gives birth to new worlds. He is the one to whom every man must give account and before whom every man will kneel. And that reign is not gonna start in a hundred years or a thousand years, that reign started with his ascension and his enthronement over the heavens and over the cosmos. So with that truth, with that truth, we are diligent and we take his word seriously. We don't despair. We're not frantic. We're not hopeless. We're not living in constant fear of what bad people are doing in dark corners. That's not it at all. No, we patiently, without anxiety, steadfastly, confidently wait on the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. And we raise our children in joy and we raise our children in hope and we raise our children in confidence of his word. We teach them and we plow when we plant and we fertilize and water in joy, not despair, in hope, not pessimism. That is why this is so important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us your word. And now we pray that you would give us your spirit so that we would be diligent to not sit around, to not, to not cruise, but to be faithful and to watch and to labor and to work for your mighty hand to work in the world, to labor and to support and to strengthen the growth of your church throughout the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.